This podcast contains strong language and adult themes, namely discussions around grief. Stick with us though, it does get quite murdery pretty soon. This is Perfectly Murderous. Kia ora e haremai, uh, Perfectly Murderous, avec moi Ryan Stevenson e mon bon amico Sandy King. Ça va, Sandy? Slanch uh, Mahath. No, I don't know anymore. I was going to answer in Irish <laughs> in honour of the magnificent Irish rugby team. Oh, yes. And their recent exploits, which will date this podcast if anyone's listening to this in <laughs> in 80 years' time, because they'll be like, oh, that was the one time when Ireland beat New Zealand at rugby. <laughs> Over here, the All Blacks are kind of seen as this just magnificent force and kind of the real pride of the country. But there is a kind of certain arrogance to them. Yes. So when they do lose, I quite enjoy it. You've, you're too big for your boots. Yeah. So how are you, Sandy, anyway? I am feeling very negative at the moment, which is a good thing because ah. it means I don't have COVID anymore. Oh, I was just about to say, because I've got some great material that's going to really cheer you up. <laughs> so Sandy's had COVID for a, a little while now. I, I've had a sickness bug as well. Plus, we had a break because of work and various other things. So it's been quite a long time since we've recorded an episode. So this does fill me with a sense of a certain happiness of Sandy. Can you give us the recap? So there's a book <laughs> and it's written by, I want to say your uncle or your grandfather or. Okay. Okay. So Robert Steele detective trilogy, getting away with murder, how to get away with murder. I can't be a hundred percent certain on the title. This is not a good start. I hate this bit. Getting away with murder. It's, oh, I was right the first time. Continue. So our protagonist, David Stone. And <laughs> did you pause just to see if I'd correct you on the name? <laughs> <laughs> David St- Storm Star- Storms <laughs> have been dealing with the aftermath of her terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, And in the last chapters, they drove home from the hospital and she needs like round the clock healthcare effectively looking after. Mm. And they're both very, very angry with a system that sort of neglected her. And there is a recurring reference to a letter that was sent by his ex-wife and spoiler alert, future murder victim. It's all very well and good, Sandy. That, I mean, that's the circumstances, the events. But what are the themes? What are the themes, Sandy? The themes, um, <laughs> terminal illness, anger. Um, I feel like I'm back at university. What are the themes? <laughs> I haven't read the York notes on this. I've only read the, book to the text. I haven't even read the text. I really am back at university. I think I might be in more trouble than you anyway, Sandy, because at the start you talked about terminal illness and um, I did a little chuckle. And it wasn't at the terminal illness. It was the fact that you were stumbling a bit to try to remember. I'd just like to point that out. <laughs> would you like me to help you out a little bit, Sandy? Um, I would love you to help me out quite a lot. <laughs> no, I've had my fun. <laughs> so we had chapters 
14 and 15 and they they went away to the hospital and had their diagnosis and, and then these chapters are about them returning back at home having been given that terminal diagnosis and we talked very much around what do you do in that circumstance and David Stone's response was well nothing because what do you do mm. so they just sat at home and waited and couldn't enjoy life and and was very much in pain and then they started arguing around the letter that the first wife had well instigated um, through the CSA the child support agency and threatening to take the house so mm -hmm. they had an argument about that and became very upset and David was talking about getting us sedated and in a in a panic he rang he rang the doctors and they said bring her to Ray and E we'll admit her so that's kind of where we got up to on that okay and they're just on their just on their way to A&E now yes I do remember this now I mean I, I definitely did before but yes that is <laughs> moment at which we pick up the story well done you've got it right there was a bit of a there was a line at the end of chapter 15 i'm sure you were just about to point this out sandy mm. but um he said that david stone he rolled over in bed he, he couldn't possibly let anyone know what he was thinking and it's just all of these thoughts and all of these horrific you know his imagination's running away with these horrible mm -hmm. different scenarios and situations and these grim thoughts and i feel like he's trying to hold it together at the moment and he's really a man losing his grip yeah that is planting a seed of future events mm. i suppose right sandy are you ready for chapter 16 yeah let's go okay chapter 16 of getting away with murder dreaming again slowly as the thoughts and memories started to fit together he started to see the car racing down the motorway he was watching from above almost out of body again reaching the hospital in record time swinging the car into a row of parking spaces nearest the a and e entrance no room no spaces who cares leave it here this is urgent leaving the hazard lights on he went to look for a porter or someone to help Anne. there was no one in view and he realized it would be quicker if he just wheeled her into a and e why do i have to do everything on my own again rushing around like some headless chicken he was not thinking logically everything was in the wrong order get help make sure the car wasn't clamped where are the wheelchairs where's the ticket machine get a ticket bloody car park charges god he wished he had a sledgehammer he would have taken out his frustration on that money grabbing machine but then he'd probably have carried it into reception and vented his fury at the stupid receptionist as well calm down get her admitted first feed the machine no sod the machine no do it right get a ticket most of his change was rammed into the machine I just uh, stop in there. There's lots of references to machine at this point, and we and we've had that before. Mm. Feed the machine, or and it, it just sort of struck me that it sounds very 1984. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The literal machine. Yeah, because that's that's caused him problems before as well. But then also the machinery, mm. the apparatus of the state. There's definitely the hospitals been referred to as you know. I remember don't impede the machine. Mm. And there's I think there's been descriptions of individual staff who work there as being certainly in mechanical terms emotionless, mm. dispassionate, in contrast to the rising passions in our protagonist. It's this very, the way he feels, it's this very subversive, unhelpful world that he finds himself fighting against and he doesn't, he's not part of, doesn't fit into this world almost. Yeah, yeah, no one cares, there isn't compassion. Thankfully for David Stone, I don't think there are thought police, otherwise uh, he might be in trouble. You don't think? Maybe. Maybe. Robert Steele is a thought detective. I still want to meet him. <laughs>
I promised I wouldn't bang on about him this week, but I still <laughs> do want to meet Robert Steele. Maybe he's not a detective yet and he starts off as a car park attendant. Oh. I never know. Steele. What's made of mis- steel? Machines. Oh, what a connection. <laughs> he's another cog. Oh, it's good. Most of his change was rammed into the machine. Then finding a wheelchair for her wasn't easy. And when he did, the arseholes were even charging for these now. And he didn't have any change left. It's only a pound. Did you get it back when you return it? Said the car park attendant helpfully as he watched the frantic search for change. Thank God there was still some change in the car. Paying the black bail money, he released the wheelchair for Anne to struggle into and finally got her into reception, where he found he was getting angry and upset again. More frustration than anything else, which greatly hindered his explanation of why they were there. Choking his way through the endless questions, he stood desperately trying not to give in to the tears that weren't far away. Be efficient for once. Get something right. Don't make a fool of yourself. Get someone to look after Anne. He knew he must have looked a stupid, miserable sight, but couldn't help it. Just didn't care anymore what people thought. Don't flap about. Don't be so inefficient. Try to explain without getting mixed up. Bugger, can't get the answers out. The receptionist didn't care. She'd seen it all before. All he got in return for his frustration was a blank face. No compassion anywhere. God, they were a bloody hard lot. Sitting there behind the protective glass screens. They must see a hundred patients all day long. What do they care? Where was the humanity, the sympathy, the help, the arm around the shoulder? But they were just part of the system. Look at them. Blank faces, all of them. Just bloody respond. Be human just for once. There's another sort of another part of the system there for the people. Mm, yeah. No, I was thinking as you read that, that it really reflects this idea of his his emotions contrasted with the emotionless, cold, unfeeling world of, of the hospital and the whole, yeah, the whole machine. And also it's very much him struggling. I feel like there's this sense of frustration or helplessness that he has. Be efficient for once. Get something right. Don't make a fool of yourself. Don't be so inefficient. Don't get mixed up. Yeah. There's all of these things. He's he's trying his best for Anne, but all of these thoughts keep creeping in. Like he's just, he's not doing the best and he's he's failing or sort of every turn he's not getting any of the help yeah i think it's um in the original meaning of the word is it's it's very pathetic it evokes pity yeah to see this guy trying to keep it together at a time when you know by all rights he should be able to go to pieces but he has to find some coherence and give words to what's what's going on around him and do the right thing for Anne and fighting not to let those feelings spill over. Yeah, and not receiving any of the help on the way. Mm. The A&E nurse took his letter and they waited and waited. Anne in tears again. All he could do was just sit there with an arm around her shoulders telling her it was all right. He would sort it all out. It was all a mistake. He would make it better. It was such a lie. I can't do anything. I failed. Worse. I failed you. After an hour, they were wheeled into a curtained bay where an intern tried to take a blood sample, failing time and time again before giving up and admitting she was too dehydrated. We'll take her in for a sample and get her on the drip somehow, he said. With that, she was wheeled away and he was left alone in the cubicle, wondering what to do now. The nurse came back through later and said that she'd been admitted to a ward and he could go home, but he could bring some clothes back with him later. That was it. But she was in hospital. Just bring her clothes. She'll be okay now. Really? She would get treated? So there was still a chance. And that is your end of chapter 16. That's a cruel little... I mean, obviously, knowing what we know about how the story ends, a cruel little flicker of false hope. Mm. The sort of thing that... The sort of phrase that people must use without thinking about it, like, she'll be okay. But obviously, if you're 
connected emotionally to someone who's in a situation like that it means such a very very different thing and yeah you're right a throwaway sentence can can be hope for somebody can't it mm. in, a, in a situation like that and i don't know how much that david stone's just clutching at straws just looking for any kind of possibility that the inevitable is not going to happen mm-hmm. it's a hard chapter to read because you just like you said you do have this incredible empathy for the character and the fact that he's surrounded by people, but nobody's helping him. Mm-hmm. He just feels like he's just let Anne down and he feels just ineffective and helpless. And yeah, very tragic. Yeah, that's a horrible level to see it on, isn't it? This this idea that not only is he having to fight to keep it together at a time when, again, by all rights, he should be able to go to, go to pieces. Mm. Like if the system worked... Someone in the, in that situation, in that extreme a moment where you're looking at, you're, you're about to lose your life partner, should have the time to, you know, that should that's a moment where you should be allowed to wail and scream and and mm. and just let emotions come out. He's having to fight to keep it in. He's doing that, and yet he still feels as though he's not doing enough. Yeah. You know, he's actually doing something that's that's kind of incredible at that point, but because it doesn't change the fundamental circumstances of Anne's life he's still angry with himself that he can't do more you're right it's, it's a really interesting point the fact that he, he should be given a lot of credit for getting through these moments and although he's not being perfect he's you know certainly still managing to function and do these things uh-huh. and being there for Anne. and he but he's not getting himself any credit for those those actions he just sees this as a failure yeah okay sandy chapter 17 yeah you ready for another short one go on go for it okay <laughs> His brain was catching up with everything that had spun through his brain in the last few hours. Recent events were suddenly easier to recall. He had his focus back at last. Back in the present now, he remembered visiting every day, sometimes twice a day if friends and family didn't want to use the precious but very limited visiting slots. Time was so short that he used every available minute to be beside her, but he was little use in comforting her. Just someone to talk to, he often felt. But he was horrified on the first visit to find a zombie in the place of his wife who'd been drugged with a massive dose of tramadol painkiller. After a furious argument, this was changed to a morphine drip, which she had control over. At least she could talk to him now, but he felt exhausted after every session, upset and drained emotionally and mentally. Have you ever had tramadol, Sandy? No, I haven't. I'm um, very fortunate, actually, to have got to this. I sort of don't want to say it because it is definitely tempting fate. So I've got to the age I'm at without having had to have any major medical interventions. I've had some long periods of ill health, but I haven't had those types of hospital stays and things like that. So it's a it's a world that really spooks me because mm. it's so unknown. You have? Yeah, tramadol is very weird. I broke my foot and it was quite painful. There was a couple of bones in my foot that I broke. And the, the hospital, the doctor that I was visiting, sort of a 20, 25 minute driveway and I couldn't drive. So Laura came and dropped me off at the doctor and and then went off to work and that it was that I was going to sort of hang around town until I could sort of get a lift back mm. but having even to get in the car be transported around have to get around the doctors and then get from the doctors to sort of a park where I could sit down and get some food even with crutches it was a really painful day so I ended up I had some tramadol for pain relief I'd taken it at night time just to sort of help me sleep and I hadn't taken it during the day and I had no idea of its effects but it's what I had with me so I was like oh I'll 
take some of that. That's okay. Yeah. Had no idea about the side effects and it completely wiped me out. I really sort of in a, in a kind of really hard to describe, but I, I just wasn't with it at all. Yeah. And then I was in the park, this sort of big domain area and it started raining and I was just lying on the grass in the rain, sort of flapping about, Nora, come <laughs> save me. And um, thankfully she did. Forgive the choice of image, but that is very, like, like a beached whale. Yes. I... <laughs> that is a very sad image. I mean, I've actually seen you in a similar state, funnily enough, but that was a long time ago <laughs> at a different stage of your life and for very different reasons. Anyway, back, back to the book. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, well, funnily enough, I did have onlookers still staring at me and I was very aware that people weren't coming to help me. They kind of oh, no. thought that I was just sort of some drunk passed out on the grass in the rain and, um, yeah, they could have just left me be. Oh, God, that is desperate. Was that down in New Zealand or was that in the UK? That was in New Zealand. Thankfully, it wasn't oh, no. raining much and Laura did come and get me quite quickly. So it was it was all right. All's well, it ends well. <laughs> anyway. Every night he went home in tears. It was a wonder he didn't crash the car on his way home, as his sight was so blurred. It was the knowledge that there was nothing he could do. That helpless feeling pervaded his body and mind, numbing his brain, making him drive on remote, ignoring the other drivers. She was doomed, whatever he did. She would die anyway. What upset him more than anything else was the evasive manner in which the staff treated him. When he wanted a doctor in the past, he couldn't find one. Now, when it was too late, there were plenty of consultants, aimlessly milling about every day. Where had they been when he needed their help? To compound the problems surrounding her illness, he could never get a straight answer from anyone. No clear thinking anywhere. Every day there seemed to be a different policy. Every day a different consultant. Every day a different prognosis. One day, they'd be doing a biopsy so they could work out the cause of the primary cancer and treatment would begin immediately. The next day she was deemed too, too ill to have that. It was called internal bleeding. Have to get her fit enough to do a biopsy. They were looking to increase her white blood count. Make sure she healed. A new program today. The following day, they were back to the original plan. But eventually, after five days, they admitted she was a lost cause. The prognosis hit him like a hammer blow, the final surrender, the final admission that they were going to walk away and show the white flag, his thoughts in turmoil. So she was terminal. Nothing to be done. End of the problem, then. Sorry, but we can't do anything for you. Just go away and die and stop wasting our time now. But do it quickly so we can have a bed back for someone who will be treatable. Someone to make our figures look good again. There were never any answers about our time left. Planning anything was useless. There was no willing to give him an honest answer. Couldn't anyone tell him what was happening? When at last he managed to get a young intern to talk to him about his worst fears and how much time she had left, he was told a year at most. Staring at the doctor incredulously, he just exploded. Don't lie, how long? Months at most, but possibly weeks, could even be hours. Depends on how strong she was, how much she wanted to live. Dumbstruck, he stood there, horrified at the news. Hours? No, not hours, no, that couldn't be true, that was so cruel, so wrong. They would have no time together at all. Bastards. How could they have lied to him for so long? She was placed on the pathway later that day and moved to a side room to die. Somewhere out of sight, somewhere where she wouldn't upset the others in the ward. We can't have the visitors offended after all, out of sight, out of mind. Don't worry, she wouldn't be long for this world. Just remember to pick up the body on the way out. Uncaring bastards. And that, Sandy, is your chapter 17. It's, um... Must be horrible. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? To be given that false glimmer of hope. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. It's unclear how much time passes. At one point, he, he says, you know, every evening he'd drive home. Mm. And it's strange to not really have a sense of how many evenings are every evening. You know, was it a few days? Was it a couple of weeks? 
But there's been this phase in which there has been some kind of hope and then to be sort of discharged from that ward. And... It's quite an interesting choice to not give a time frame on it because it would be such an unreal time in somebody's life mm. that would that just drag on for eternity or would the fact that the time is so short feel like it's racing by? I don't know whether it'd be a mix and I imagine that he's not sleeping and days, night and nights, day and it's all just kind of one churned up cycle mm. in his imagination and I imagine at this point David Stone has no idea about time. If you were to ask David Stone how many days has Anne been in hospital he would be clueless I imagine. It would all just sort of blur into one. Yeah and it, it, it does play into the sort of dreamlike structure of, of the book so far where mm. we drift in and out of different time periods. I mean, actually saying that, we have had a run of five or six chapters, possibly even more now, where we have just been following a, a linear chronology. We haven't had any flashes forward into the present, quote-unquote present day, where he's in the hospital as a patient himself. And But for a long time, we were bouncing around between different time periods and mm. he was sedated and everything felt a bit blurry around the edges it's very very sad for me i think the way that he we can absolutely understand his thought process on this but he's convinced that everything is being done with the most cynical of motives and from an outside point of view you maybe look at it and go well if you're running a hospital with limited resources then then moving someone whose life can't be saved to a bed to make way for someone whose life can be saved is, is a pragmatic, necessary decision that isn't necessarily motivated by not wanting to upset visitors or mm. improving their statistics. Um, but at this point, he obviously, and understandably, very much sees every decision as being taken for the very worst possible reason. I think it's very sad as well how we've talked about that he just feels like he's failing and you made a really great point earlier on sandy when you said that actually he's doing a remarkable job of holding it together given the circumstances mm. and he really is doing everything that he could be doing but he still has that sense that he's failing because i mean the overall thing that matters is whether Anne lives or dies and at the moment she's dying yeah and he can't help that no so his level of comfort that he provides is kind of meaningless it's it's all about the end yeah. result of whether she lives or, or or passes away yeah yeah and that false glimmer of hope is just devastating. And then to be told potentially hours that you go, okay, this is uh, it's really, it's happening and it's happening now. Mm. Mm. Well, Sa Sandy, I have, um, I've received a piece of correspondence. Oh, have you? Which, uh, which I will share with you. So yeah, it was a voice recording I received from somebody called Stuart and I will, I'll give you the, the summary of what Stuart said. He said that, um, chapters, 10 and 11 struck a chord with him and um, he started making horrifying comparisons between himself and David Stone. <laughs> it is a worrying sign. <laughs> it's very worrying already, isn't it? <laughs> he said he was in an airport and he was very hungry and there was a gigantic queue at McDonald's, the, the self-service terminals. And um, he felt that there was too much choice at these self-service terminals and everyone was dilly-dallying and taking a bit too long. And there was sort of about 20 people ahead of him. Mm. At which point, Stuart said he imagined that all of their hearts exploded and um, he could just step over their, their dead bodies um, in order to place his order and um, get his food quicker, which is <laughs> very... In a manner echoing David Stone's nuclear bomb fantasy in, <laughs> in the hospital. 
I think the lesson here is that is that as humans, we need to be very careful in situations involving the word terminal. Yes. It can provoke strong revenge fantasies. Definitely. It's really interesting because I'll be honest, I've never had, I've had moments of blinding rage. I suppose maybe when behind the wheel of a car, I have on occasion wished fiery death on individual drivers who've really ticked me off. Many of whom will never have even been aware of my existence. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had it on quite that scale. But it's interesting that maybe some of this stuff is a little bit more universal than we might suspect. Yeah. I found uh, a quiz online mm. that talked about how you managed to deal with different situations. Okay. And, and it's got sort of, depending on your answers, depending on sort of what you might need to work on. But I've also slipped in a couple of options that might be relevant to somebody who's really feeling like they're connecting with david stone at this point okay so um are you are you ready to take the quiz sandy yeah it's been a while since i've done any therapy so um i'm lying down on the couch and uh <laughs> i'll place my brain in your caring hands okay you've got to note down whether you get um your, your a b c or d okay well i didn't realize i was gonna to have to work for it but okay fine <laughs> question one you're suddenly very very resentful <laughs> yeah i mean well. yeah i don't think you're gonna do well in the quiz sandy <laughs> i'm not saying that i wish your wish your heart would explode but i'm a little <laughs> bit annoyed that i have to keep track of my own score here you're meant to be the, the person administering this test <laughs> so here you go for for people people at home as well go on then so what do you do if you feel that someone's trying to upset you do you a Shake it off. They're probably having a bad day. B, give them calm, constructive feedback. C, shout and curse. They want to upset you. You can upset them more. Mm -hmm. Or D, plot their demise over decades. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly D. Somewhere between C and D. My usual response in that situation is to get very, very cold and sarcastic and heavy-handed with my replies. Uh, which I think displays <laughs> the desire for revenge of option C combined with the cold calculating psychopathy of option D. Okay, you're, you're sort of somewhere in between there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right, question two. When things aren't going your way, do you A, put on a happy song and dance? B, think about what's upsetting you so you can plan a, a way forward? C, take your anger out physically on something? Or D, Detonate a small nuclear device. <laughs> Oddly, I think I might be A with that. I don't know. Others might yeah. disagree. A or B. Put on a happy song. Okay, this is going to determine what, what letter you are mostly then, Sandy. The last one. Uh -huh. well, this is a tricky one. What do you do if a stranger accidentally takes your place in a queue? Mm. <laughs> a. Never mind. It's just unintentional. Let it pass. B. Kindly point out that they'd pushed in front of you. C, shout at them that the back of the queue is behind you. Or D, buy a cattle prod and zap the stranger until they stop convulsing before attacking <laughs> other people in the queue, especially targeting children. So um, a little bit of cultural context is that the concept mm. of the queue never really made it to Sicily, where I live. Oh, okay. Um, it is just anathema to culture here. If you are trying to get on an airplane 
or get served at the local deli counter or like any type of situation where the Brits, for example, would form a very neat line. These guys just scrummage forward. And sometimes if I'm, say, the second person to arrive, I'll make the mistake of standing more or less where you would stand if you were starting a queue and (laughs) will then watch as like three other people just wander up to the front and push straight past you so i'm dead to this now at this point i have no resistance left and i would be an option a but when i first came here it was there was a lot more sarcastic tutting under my breath maybe making me a c (laughs) so have you decided whether you're mostly a's b's c's or d's sandy or somewhere in between no i haven't no i haven't um i'll tell you what i'll read you exactly what i've written okay Question one, C or D. Question two, A or B. Question three, A, B or C. So (laughs) on average, that makes me a complicated, multifaceted human being who won't be pinned down by your survey. But let's say B. (laughs) Okay, so if you were mostly A's, you're kind and calm, but don't let people walk all over you. If you're mostly B's, you're assertive and you can stand up for yourself when challenged. Mostly C's? You may have some anger issues. Consider reflecting on how your behaviour is affecting others. Or mostly D's, stop listening to this podcast immediately. David Stone is having too much of an effect on you. Seek professional help. (laughs) It's good to know where I stand. (laughs) Thankfully, you're not, well, not universally D's. Otherwise, that would be the end of the podcast. I would have had to stop it in your best interests. Yes. Right, Sandy, it's been a a fairly sombre affair today. However, as always, we have the moment where you can tell us that happy story and really brighten our day, cheer us all up, make us forget all about the the horror, the horror and the grief, Hmm. the never-ending horror. Yes, it's it's hard to know which of my symptoms was the most entertaining during the two weeks (laughs) I spent sick and ill. I don't know. I, I suppose the fever, in a way, is the most... There's a sort of satisfaction to see exactly how drenched you can make the sheets when you wake up in the middle of the night, or um, how many times in 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 a fitful hour and a half sleep you can wake up and adjust the air conditioning. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was the enforced distance from everyone you know and love I, I, I mean stop me if I'm being too glib with, with any of this or, or too cheery I'm going to be honest I'd, I'd prepared to make good on a promise that I made you in the last episode um, to read you the story of my namesake Ah, oh, Sandy King from the Wild Wild West. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yes, I think we've been we've been chatting for a little while, and I might hold it over your head until next week. Oh, you're doing what I did with the you package know. when we. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you like them apples? <laughs> you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss starts to stare back at you. <laughs> Oh no. I'll read you the first I'll read you the first sentence just by way of a trailer. Oh go on then. So next week on Perfectly Murderous, Sandy King, Rustler and Thief. This is from the Legends of America website. Sandy King was an outlaw who often rode with more well known and notorious William Curly Bill Brocious in Arizona. Wow. So my namesake wasn't even the most famous outlaw in his gang of two. <laughs> Gives, gives a sense of his <laughs> his true status in life. 
Well, I look forward to that next week very much. Maybe what I'll do is I'll just read two sentences every every episode to draw it out. Like a <laughs> twisted parody of this whole, this whole concept. No, I won't. If we've got time at the end of next week, I'll tell you the whole story. Perfect. And you never know next week. Like I said last time, perhaps we might meet David Steele. I'm sure that he has to pop up in this book at some point. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe at the end of it all, we'll realise that the true David Steele was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> As always, if you have any comments, queries, questions, anything you want to send us, get in contact at perfectlymurderous@outlook.co.nz. All right, Sandy, thank you very much. Thank you. Good to hear from you, man. Catch you later, mate. See ya. Bye. But in this room, I'll keep it much closer to me so it's not too echoey. I shall try not to use my loud echoey voice. <laughs> voice, 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 voice. <laughs>